So we'll get back at it. So the time between when we read together at breakfast and when we read together at lunch is when I do one-on-one -on -one work with my kids. And it's short and efficient. So the most amount of kids I ever had homeschooling at the same time, meaning some were preschoolers and some were, or, or some were finished school, was five, okay? So those five kids I would just take turns with, you know, or four kids or however many I would take turns with throughout the morning. I had the odd year where I would spend some time in the afternoon helping an older child with something like essay writing or a study guide for science or something like that as my kids got to be um, teenagers and <clears throat> doing high school stuff. So uh, when I started doing this workshop, I had several times people ask me if they for this segment of it, if you know, do you have something I could take away? Like, do you have a printout or do you have a little book or something like that on dictation? So when I finally had enough time, my old kids were old enough that I could actually write a book. That was the first one I did a couple years ago. Wrote the little booklet on dictation so that people could come to this workshop and take it home. So one would have to beg the question, uh, why don't you just say, here, this is a really good book, you should buy it, uh, and not talk about dictation for an hour. <laughs> Uh, the reason why I don't do that is because I think dictation was so fundamental to the way that I approached all other learning and all other subject areas that it's worth spending 45 minutes or an hour on. If you want the book, you can still take it home for reminders. But um, I just think it's way too important to to kind of brush it off as just, just read the book. So ultimately what dictation is, is one person saying something aloud and another person taking it down in some way, okay? So that might be a boss to a secretary who's taking something down in shorthand or she's typing something out. In the context of education, usually we would consider dictation something where somebody's reading something to the child and they're writing it out, okay? Uh, copy work is different than dictation. So copy work, they're actually looking at the sample and they're writing it out. Um, there might be some a placeholder for that. It's not really what we do because I feel like dictation is so valuable that it would cover what you could learn in copy work and so much more that it's worth the five to ten minutes that I'm going to spend on every dictation lesson. So when I learned dictation, I originally learned about dictation through this book, The Three R's by Ruth Beechick, which is kind of a homeschool classic. So she talks about writing, math, and language and talks about dictation as a teaching tool for reading and language. Uh, the way that she presents dictation is different than how I ended up doing it, but a lot of the skills I learned was through that book, and it's a really valuable book, even though my dictation is going to look a little different. So basically what she was saying was you dictate a passage to the child, and I'll describe more what that means later as we go along in this. Uh, dictate a passage to the child, and then go through and circle everything that is an error. And then the next day, go through the passage again 
so that they can correct the errors. All right. It struck me a little bit that doing that would be kind of the same thing as doing 30 multiplication questions every day, which is what I did in school. We had our little worksheet of 30 multiplication or addition facts, and you would get some of them wrong, half of them, 10 of them, whatever amount you got wrong, but you would get the same ones wrong over and over again because you couldn't remember what was the right answer and what was the wrong answer because you'd written the wrong answer down so many times. And I thought, I think there could be some value in just helping the child do it correctly the first time. And as it turns out, that method worked really well and laid the foundation for many other things that I ended up doing. So, so in my world, what happens is I read a passage of prose or a passage from a poem, a nursery rhyme, whatever we choose, and I'll talk about choosing materials in a bit, slowly enough and with enough help that they do it correct the first time. Okay, so the, the teaching is built in. There's passive teaching. Every single thing you tell them to write down, that's a pH, that's an O, that has a silent E on the end, you're passively teaching them, all right? But you're going to draw out one or two or maybe maximum three little lessons out of each dictation that you actually make an active lesson. So you're teaching everything passively, but you're going to pull a couple of things out actively. For example you know, using a period. So we put a dot at the end, that's a period. Then on my side of the page, I'm using a little exercise book just like this. They're doing their dictation here. I'm making any little lessons that I'm pulling out of it here. Now I just do this on the fly. It's something that I do because there's a kabillion lessons, exactly one kabillion lessons that I could pull out of any dictation passage. And I write my little active lesson over here. So I draw a dot, that's a period. That shows that the sentence is over. Okay, I might do that 10 days in a row, I might do it once a week, I might do it whenever I think about it, but eventually, drip, 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 after 10 or 12 years of homeschooling, they're going to know that there's a period that goes there. And it's just going to happen, just like the baseball, it's just going to happen, you know, because you spend all that time going over it and over it and all of the other aspects of language as well. So I want to run through, first of all, the benefits of dictation and why it has worked so well. So first of all, it's just really wholesome and simple. You have a pencil, you have an exercise book, you have something you're reading out of, and you have your mom, right? Very simple, very wholesome. It builds really good habits because you're only going to have that child beside you for as long as they can reasonably attend. So for some children, that might be 30 seconds. For some children, it might be a minute. Maybe you're going to go five minutes. 10 would be an absolute maximum, even with an older child. I would rarely go beyond 10. Um, it builds a, a habit of them attending near you for what they're capable of, and then you can build on that. So you start with 30 seconds. Maybe you build up to 40 seconds. Then, sure enough, next year, wow, they can sit for a whole minute, two minutes, five minutes. Look at that. They're asking if they can do it longer now. But you're teaching them to attend. But more importantly than teaching your child to attend, you're teaching yourself to attend. We Culturally, we live in a society that does not attend very well. So if we can teach ourselves that this, this is really important right now, we're just going to pull it all in. We're just going to pull it all together for right now. You're teaching yourself a habit that is invaluable. It's perfectly tailored to every stage and every skill set and skill level that a child has, which rarely is the skill set set out in a curriculum for the average child because it's not the way children learn. And I'll give you an example of that. My oldest daughter was an extremely early reader. She could read at three. By the time we started homeschooling, she was almost five. 
And she was a fluent reader. She could read novels at this point. So, but she had uh, quite poor, sort of, um, I would say a little bit um, slow motor skills because her brain was, you know, leaping ahead, doing amazing things. And often the it's one or the other, right? They don't often go together in some nice, neat course. So she, her fine motor skills were a bit behind, I would say. And we sat down to do dictation, and I had to do short dictations because it would, you know, make her hand sore. She could only handle making a certain amount of letters because she was learning how to develop her, her fine motor skills. But what I was able to do while developing her fine motor skills on just how to make letters, she knew the letters, she knew the sounds, I could work on things like punctuation. I could work on things like grammar. I could work on parts of speech. Things that normally the average child in the workbook that doesn't exist would have, you know, you'd be doing um, very, you know, sort of pre-dictation skills, kind of pre-writing skills. You'd be practicing shapes, practicing letters, but you would not also be talking about punctuation at the same time. All right. Because those two skills are quite uh, diverse, but they do exist in, you know, the same human being frequently. Um, my second daughter came along <laughs> by the time she was five, she read on kind of average around seven. Uh, she was, her fine motor skills were terrific. She could write a whole page of dictation in five minutes, but she couldn't actually read yet. So what was I doing with her as we're moving along? I'm spelling things out. I'm teaching her what? How to read. Yeah. Phonics. Okay. She's learning that as we go. This letter, this is how it looks. She can make that perfectly. And it says P, right? And this says A, and this says T. So, you know, I'm teaching really diverse skills in the same kind. I could use the same passage even. It wouldn't matter, right? I'm teaching the same skills uh, the, that exist in one person because that is how we are. We tend to be stronger in something and weaker in something. Yes. How do you teach a child who can't read how to write the word they can't read? They're, you're giving them one letter at a time. And if they don't know how to make the letter, you're helping them make the letter. So you're, you're scaling it right back to exactly uh, what they need, whether that's one letter, one sound at a time, or a whole series of words at a time. So would you, like, say the passage and then spell it out, or mm -hmm. would you just spell out each individual word? Or? I'd spell out each individual word, uh, but I would usually read the passage first. Whatever we're going to do for dictation that day, I would usually read the passage first. So if you're spelling it out or, or letter by letter... Just short, like two sentences or something. Like Usually, yeah. And I'll talk about different levels in a moment, what, what you'd be doing with a pre-reader, an early reader, a later reader, uh, in a few minutes more, so you get a, a better feel for it, yeah. Uh, so so it's perfectly tailored. Oh, so what, what, that's what I found the most beautiful thing, is that it really goes with that... Um, like, you know, Vygotsky teaches that zone of proximal development in, in like, in education, we have to, that was, like, this huge theorist that teaches that you just teach what will be a happy, a happy challenge. So, not so challenging that they're going to cry. Frustrate, and not yeah. Not so easy that it's boring. <clears throat> yeah. But just that perfect place. So, if it has to be... You know, if the zone is just learning how to form a letter or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, that's exactly what you're doing with each kid, with each aspect of language, because it's not just about the letters. Right? <coughs> language is a, is a whole thing. So you're doing that with all those aspects of language. Um, you're engaging all of their senses. Okay. Not all of their senses. You're engaging most of their senses. So you're saying it. They're writing it. They're seeing it. 
you're talking about it, right? So it's it's engaging a lot so that they're, you know, the, ch- the child who's tactile or the child who's, you know, more cerebral or whatever, they're, you're addressing it from all the different angles. So they're going to get it, right? In whatever uh, time frame they need to get it. So it is passive and active, but it is not the quiz test model. It's just modeling. Passively, I'm telling you everything. You know, this is how you make a P. Um, you need to write down the word pat. Can you do that by yourself? You know, do you know what letters you need to write? And then I'm pulling out active things as well, but it's always modeling. So whatever active lesson I make, it's still a modeling. Every passive thing I say is still modeling. There's no quiz test involved in it. It builds incredibly strong language skills and it builds them in two different ways. First of all, you're taking language and you're putting it under a microscope. Okay, you are the microscope. You're looking at it and you're looking at the mechanics of language, how language is made, how language is built, how it all works together, um, how we even acquire it really is, is, is part of it because they're acquiring it through dictation often. But we're also taking language and looking at it through a telescope. Okay, so we're backing way, way up and we're looking at the purpose and beauty of language in the same lesson. So, you know, the purpose and beauty of language is, of course, something that is going to be, as they get older, you're going to pull back farther. You still have your telescope moments when they're little, where sometimes you just talk about a line of poetry. Wow, how does that make you feel? You know, but as they get older, we're going to address uh, the telescope aspect of language, the macro version of learning language. Um, in a much more profound way. And they become super literate people because they not only have the mechanics of language, really detailed mechanics of language, they have the, the purpose and beauty of language all being presented to them as a whole thing. This is one whole thing. If your children are super literate, isn't that a great word? <laughs> super literate. Um, they are going to be able to teach themselves anything. Okay, they, will, they can learn how to wire their house. They can learn how to fix a toilet. They can learn how to do quantum physics. If they're super literate, they can teach themselves anything. Uh, So I'm going to run through the list of things. This is not a complete list, but it's a pretty good start. On all of the possible things that you can use dictation for, some starting from younger kids, working up to older kids, and the kinds of things we've used it for. So learning to attend, letter sounds, letter formation, Neatness, simple punctuation and capitalization, phonics, spelling rules, spelling anomalies, rhyming, sentence structure, parts of speech, grammar, prefixes, suffixes, and root words, complex punctuation and capitalization, author and poet biographical information, diction, vocabulary, pronunciation, cursive writing, memorization, literary terms, poetry, types of poetry, poetry terms, rhyme, rhythm, and meter, Poetry and literary analysis, speech arts, poetry and prose recitation, dramatic monologue, prepared speeches, exploration of ideas, referencing scripture, using referencing using reference books, including atlases, encyclopedias, and dictionaries, and research skills. And we have done all of those in five to ten minutes a day of dictation for ten or twelve years. <laughs> so it never had to be something separate. All of those things were never separate. We never had a grammar book. We never had a you know um, parts of speech book. We never had a, a lesson on how to use a map, use an encyclopedia. All of that was incorporated in what we do. <clears throat> so what does it look like? It looks very cozy, all right? We're sitting here at a table. I I do my one-on-one work in that little kitchen window there. Um, And 
I usually have my arm on the back of their chair or my arm around them. We're very cozy. I happen to be left-handed, so I can write on this side of the page and they're writing on this side of the page, but you could be cozy this way too if, you're, if you were opposite. Um, so it's very cozy. Everything we need is going to be nearby. I do not want to be hopping up in the middle. You know, we sit down to do dictation. Okay, it's your turn. Come and do dictation now. That, oh, darn, no pencils, no erasers. Oh, darn, where'd your book go? Oh, darn, where's that thing we were reading from? I don't want to have to do that. So... I want to make sure that I have a toddler-proof place to put things and that that's where they always stay, okay? So usually that would be a high bookshelf. Some, for some people, it would be a kitchen cupboard and a uh, dish pan that they could put all the books in and put them up somewhere if you were short on uh, shelf space. But I would always have a place where the pencils were and the pens were and, um, you know, our resource book, whatever we were using to use to practice dictation with. Uh, would all be right there. And that's something that I would check before I went to bed at night just to make sure everything was where it needed to be so that when I sit down with my kids, I'm capitalizing on the absolute most I can in those five to ten minutes, right? So I'm going to go through a passage. I'll read it out to you first. What it might look like with a pre-reader, what it might look like with an early reader, an older reader. And bear in mind as I'm going through this, there's really limitless levels like I was describing before with the two sort of kids on the opposite end of the spectrum. There are kind of limitless levels of how this might look, but I'm just going to give you some examples so that you get a bit of a picture of how it goes. So I am looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging and it's very difficult to find anyone. I should think so in these parts. We are quite plain folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Make you late for dinner. Source that. No. <laughs> uh, okay, so I have a pre-reader. Obviously, that's far too long of a passage for most pre-readers. Now, my daughter Lucy, she probably could have written that all in one day because her fine motor skills were so good, but it would have been a lot to even, um, even for her. And... I can probably make a really good lesson for her, maybe just with one sentence or two sentences out of that. But say for a pre-reader, uh, maybe they're just learning their letters. They know some, they don't know some. And I might say, okay, the first, the first word is I. And then the, the sentence goes, I am looking for someone to share in an adventure. Do you want to just pick out your favorite word out of this whole passage? Or would you like to do a bit of this passage over a few days? And they said, uh, they might say they would like to do it over a few days and we proceed to do it all. Or I might, uh, they might say, oh, I like nasty. And so I say, okay, let's do nasty. Do you know what, you know what makes the n sound in nasty? Ah, uh, no. Okay, well, it's an N. So maybe I'd even do dots and they, they go right over top of the dots. Or if they know what an N looks like, then I'm going to let them do that on their own. Do you know what makes the ah sound? Yeah, yeah, you know what makes this sound? They almost always know S. <laughs> yes, because it's a snake sound. Um, and then T, and then Y. Do you want to just do one, one more word or just want to stop there? No, that's good, right? So I might have drawn out how to make a particular letter. I might have said, look at this Y on the end of nasty. It says E. That's funny, don't you think? Right? A Y says E, but Y says E sometimes. That's all. That's an active lesson, right? I might write down three or four more words that all say E on the end. You know, um, funny. Look, another Y says E. Isn't that funny? You know, so I'm, I'm going to go through like this with them. So uh, I could use any part of this, any word of it. I could use, I could say, make you late for dinner. We could do that in two days, maybe, or one day. And then say, there's an exclamation mark at the end, and this is a cool mark. Do you know what an exclamation mark is? No. Look at this. You do a line and a dot, and that means, wow, 
That means something kind of exciting. You're exclaiming something. Exclaiming means you said it kind of in a really intense way, either excited or happy or frustrated even, but it's intense. It intensifies what you're saying. Oh, okay. That's it. That's all I need to do. With a little bit older reader, so maybe somebody who can read a lot of things, but not everything, uh, I might say, okay, we're going to do this passage. Uh, usually for my kids, I let them choose what they want. So I'm not usually saying this is what we're doing. They're choosing something and, uh, and bringing it to the table so that I can do it with them. So, okay, well, let's take two or three days and do this. So um, I, do you remember what you do with an I when it's you're talking about yourself? No, I don't remember. Okay, well, it's always capitalized. We always capitalize an I. So I make that my lesson. It doesn't matter if it's at the beginning of a sentence or the middle of a sentence. We always capitalize the I. Oh, okay. So I, and you make it capital. M, can you spell it? Yeah. Looking. Can you spell that? Uh, I'll try. So some kids, I have to make a note here about erasophobes. Some kids are erasophobes. So don't have them erase anything. Have them say it out loud to you and then um, actually write it out if they said it out loud correctly. If they're the kind of child who's not an eraser phobe, then you can get them to try it and they might have to erase it and rewrite it. You know, but you're going to do it in that moment, right? Like, oh, pretty good guess, but it's actually ING, you know, not just NG. So um, Mary was an eraser phobe. Do you remember those days? <laughs> uh, but some, some of my kids love to just try, yeah. Um, my kid, I, I have a couple of kids who are nervous about erasing, but sometimes we do dictation on the whiteboard for that. Yeah. And, uh, and then they don't mind it at all because the letter they could go, I could rub it up on the it's good. <laughs> yes. A whiteboard could totally be a tool. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. If you had a kid that was super sensitive to any correction. Uh, I would I would just continue feeding them as opposed to correcting them. So you write down an L, then you write down an O. Eventually, they're going to grow out of that, right? Yeah. Did you, sorry, did you ask something? Oh, sorry, no. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so feed them if you know that it's, you know, you want to avoid the meltdown, right? And sometimes they happen anyway, but... What's that? You don't like being anything wrong. Yeah. So, you know, and it is something that kids generally outgrow, but, you know, so just feed them, you know, and then they know that it's, uh, it can be right every single time. Uh, So I'm going to continue going through the passage that way. I might draw out capitalization. I might say, oh, look at this word, someone. Okay. Do you know how to spell someone? Do you think it's one word or two words? Uh, I think it's two words, someone. Well, it's actually a compound word. So then I might say, so let bring that out. I write someone on my side of the page and say that's a compound word where we put two words together to make one word. Isn't that cool? And uh, here's a couple of other examples. Can you think of any other examples of compound words? So that I'm showing them, uh, you know, maybe two or three examples. That's my active lesson. That's all it is. Uh, and then I continue on with the passage and pull out uh, whatever else I see sort of that would be um, appropriate. Okay, look, can you find another compound word even in this passage? Look, there's anyone. That's cool. Anyone. Put them together. Anyone. And, you know, we could talk about if they were old enough, I'd usually talk about the author. Okay, do you know anything about Tolkien? Do you know what he wrote? I would probably use the pa- a passage from The Hobbit if we were actually reading The Hobbit. Now, if they were real Hobbit buff, then I might pull it out. But often I would use use dictation passages contextually. Do you want me to use something from a book or do you want to pick something from a poem? How about the book we're reading? Sometimes I would even uh, pick something from the next chapter that was sort of a, 
gave some kind of a clue that what, what something that was happening, so they'd be you know excited to like oh what's going to happen you know so we'd pick something out um, that they could use. So with an older reader, I'm going to give them several words at a time. Okay, so I'm going to read the whole passage first again. Uh, I'm going to ask them after the passage is done, I'm going to reread it to them and say, you try and guess the punctuation. Punctuation is hugely subjective, right? And so where they used a dash, they might have put a comma. Where they used um, a semicolon, you know, they might have used a comma and a dash at the end of, you know, the whatever clause was there or whatever. They, there's lots of different ways you can approach punctuation. You don't have to try and guess because it's in front of you. You're using a passage out of a book and all the punctuation is in there. But it's a great opportunity to talk to the child about how it might have been written. So, yeah, actually, that wasn't an exclamation mark. That was just a period there. Well, if I was writing it, I would make it an exclamation mark. I think that's pretty important. Yeah, why do you think he chose a period instead of an exclamation mark? Why do you think he put a comma there when he could have ended the sentence and made a new sentence? Or why does he have that short sentence and he didn't attach it to another sentence? Why did the author do that? So it's a great opportunity to discuss the purpose of punctuation, why we use it, where we use it, and why this particular author used it his way. <clears throat> so that's going to be definitely something we... Can I ask you a question for yeah. that? Basic question. What, do you, what kind of resource did you use? I'll be getting into that in a moment. So the question was, I'm just saying this for the <laughs> film, is what resources do I use? So in a couple of minutes, I'll go through some great resources. Yeah. Um, so I'm also going to talk with us, or I'm on middle readers here. So with the middle reader, I also might say, let's look up something about Tolkien. Let's find out where he lived. Let's find out uh, when he wrote this. You know, I'm not going to belabor the thing. I'm not going to ask them to write an essay on Tolkien, but I just want to um, increase their world knowledge, right? Increase their, uh, their, their literacy of literature by saying these things and, you know, dropping these things from time to time and pulling them out when I can. With an older reader, we're going to do the whole passage a few words at a time. I am looking for someone, so they, I'm going to assume that they can probably get all of that, to share in an adventure. I mm. can't remember how to spell adventure. Do you, is that a word you can spell? Uh, yeah, I think so. Do you want to say it out loud if they're an eraser phobe? Or do you want to say it out loud to me first? Um, yeah, so maybe they put a CH instead of the T because it has that ch sound, adventure. And... I then can say to them, um, actually, that's a T, so why don't you write it down, um, A-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-E. Um, and I might pull out some words then. Okay, if that's an active lesson, how to spell adventure, I might pull out a couple of words where a T or another letter slides into another sound. Like, it, it is a T, but we often say it a ch or a ch when it's a T or a C or some other letter, and we slide it. Why don't we say adventure? Why don't we say that? Well, some people might. But what we say is adventure. So I could pull out some other words where that's, um, that's a possibility to sh just so show some spelling ideas. Okay, so this is something, you, this doesn't actually follow the spelling rules. So that's something you're going to have to remember. You know, so let's write adventure down and a few other words that maybe do the same thing, has a T that slides into a, a ch. But also uh, for diction, you could say, okay, well, we actually are supposed to say that with a T or a D sound, like children, right? Kids often say children. Adults often say children. It's children. So when you're doing speech arts with kids, that's something that you pull out. So yeah, look at it. It's actually, it's actually children. It's a D. And we say children. When we say children, we're saying it incorrectly. So that helps you with your diction, but also your spelling. Uh, so I'm going to continue on. With this child, I might say, 
Show me on a map. Let's look up where Tolkien lived. Okay, let's get the atlas out. Okay, let's look up where he lived. What was he getting at? What was he, uh, what, what happened after this passage? Okay, what, what was he setting up? He was setting up a scene here. What happened after and why do you think he wanted this particular conversation to happen? He's, tra- he's taking us somewhere. Where's he taking us? So we're going to have a lot more conversation with an older child, you know, high school or grade seven, you know, an older child about the why of literature. What, why does it make a difference? What is the reader trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish here? And everything else in between. So we're working on mastery. So everything we teach the child, the goal is that eventually they will master it. You could go that about that very systematically. You know, for the next three months, we're going to work on punctuation. And you always, every passage you have is going to, every passage you ever choose is going to have some punctuation in it. So you're just going to pull out your punctuation and really systematically look at that and uh, work with that and, and teach the child that directly. Or you can do it non-systematically, which is what I've always done, is I just pull out whatever happens and eventually they learn it. It's just a little more organic. It's not one way is not right or wrong. I think it's more fun to just do it on the fly, but it's not, it's not fun for everybody. Okay, so some people would really prefer, no, this year we really need to focus on punctuation and capitalization. And that's what we're going to use in dictation. Doesn't mean you can't uh, talk about other things. Doesn't mean you can't use great learning opportunities as they arise. Um, you know, a word a child doesn't know or a, a word that's more difficult to spell. Uh, but if you feel more comfortable setting it out systematically, then then that's probably a better system for you. Uh we teach passively, we active, we teach actively, and then we cue them. The things that we know they probably know, okay, are they going to remember? We would cue them. Okay, that's the end of a sentence. Yeah? So something happens. What? <laughs> okay, they don't know yet. Okay? They're probably going to have to do that for a while longer, or you're going to have to focus on it for a while. Um, well, we put a dot there. Oh, we do? Yes, we've been doing this for three years. We put a dot there, and it means that the sentence is over. Oh, like, oh, yeah. But you need to maybe pull it out actively a few times then. If you, you know, presume they should know this by now, um, that you might need to focus on it a little bit so they, they get the idea a little more clearly, uh, a little more overtly. So uh, where are we? So you're dripping on them all the time, and you're backing away all the time to see, you know, where they're at. Will they remember this thing? Okay, this is the beginning of a sentence, so what do we do? We capitalize. Great. Okay, so we don't, we've got that. And they've got it for the rest of their life. Okay, when they know, as soon as you ask them, when they know they've got it for the rest of their life, it's not like, okay, I know it today and I don't know it tomorrow, as in a quiz test model like spelling. You know, you present, you can, kids can get a perfect score in a spelling test. The next week they can't spell the words, right? They're studying this out of context, Okay, and so they might, they might have the kind of brain that can take that and absorb it and if it matters to them and all of that. They might learn uh, how to spell via a spelling test. But if they're learning something contextually and they know it, you say, what do I do here? Boom, they have the answer. It's there. Okay, you don't have to revisit it. You know they're going to know all the time. Um, Your tone here is vital. This is the opportunity you have to fill your child's tank and teach them at the same time. Often we approach teaching where I'm teaching you now, I'm teaching you now, I'm teaching you now, and now we're all in a big mess, and now I have to fill your tank again. So let's read and do something nice, okay? 
you don't have to do that. You can do them at the same time. And that's the beauty of this kind of teaching is that you're filling their tank at the same time, but you have to remember to be nice. <laughs> okay. And if you only have five minutes of nice, this is the time to use it. I'm going to sit down with my child and be nice for five minutes. And you can set that goal for yourself. I can be nice for five minutes. Okay? And if you can't, don't do dictation. If you're having a really crappy day, don't do it. Okay? If you can't be nice for five minutes. But you, you, most of us can muster our resources and be nice for five minutes at a time, at least every hour. Okay? <laughs> How would you work on what, a passage or a section? Uh, so many days or... Uh, that would totally depend. Like my son probably for three or four months did a, um, what was that poem Noah did? Um, oh, the, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. It's massive, massive poem. He was probably 12 and he wanted to do the whole thing. So we spent months on it, you know, and of course he memorized it and, you know, we could use it. Didn't matter. I can pull a lesson out of anything. So he was covering the whole gamut of lessons by the same poem that we did for months. So sometimes it's only one day. So that's a discussion. And I also think if you, your child says, I want to learn um, this particular poem, like, like uh, The Night Before Christmas, which is a long poem. Okay, I want to learn The Night Before Christmas. Uh, okay, that's great. That's a great one. You could learn it in time for Christmas. You could memorize it. You could say it for grandma and grandpa, whatever, whatever. And then two or three stanzas in, they go, I'm getting bored. Okay, and you, you think... No, you said you wanted to do this, and we're going to finish it. Okay, it doesn't matter. You're not doing dictation for the life lesson of finishing something you started. That's not the purpose of dictation. Okay, so, you know, we are tempted to do that because we want our kids to be good people. So we want all the things that make them a good person to be in place when they're seven or eight, you know, and they're not, you know, so that's disturbing to us. So we need to know that that's not the lesson. It's not the purpose of dictation. <laughs> What's that? So you just switch it up. Yeah. And say, and you know, don't make a big deal of it. Like, like, oh yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. I hate this poem. Boom. Let's get something else. Right. You know, so don't, don't make that, you know, laborious. I mean, sometimes they pick a poem that's only four lines long they get one line done. It's like, oh, I actually thought I like this poem, but I don't. Okay. So well, tomorrow we'll do another one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very much where they're at at their particular time in life and all that too. So uh, yeah. Um, so several months into the school year, if you've covered like a half dozen poems or something like that, do you go back? Because I find after we've done several and they're not remembering the other ones, do you spend that five or ten minutes ever going back through your yeah. dictation book? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if we want to do a poetry recitation or if they want to relearn it or something like that, we'll practice. Okay. They'll even choose to do that sometimes. Okay. So the question was, for camera lady, um, was do I go back sometimes so the kids can uh, know if they remember it, see if they remember it, see if it's still in their brain. And it will be, but sometimes they have to work on it a little bit. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I won't make you ask a question. Um, so. so. Sorry. Yeah. So does, I know you, you already said all the things it covers, but would you then do a separate spelling lesson or this is your spelling This is it. This is, this is everything. Okay. okay. So, you know, all those things, spelling, grammar, parts of speech, all of that is, is inherent. Okay, you have to draw it out. You have to learn how to draw it out, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Along those lines, you only give the children about 10 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. If they're working on a poetry recitation, then do you send them off with homework, so to speak, of later on today, go and practice your poetry, because obviously they wouldn't be able to do a right. lot in that 10 minutes, as well as spelling and punctuation and the rest of it. 
Well, I find anything you dictate to them, they automatically memorize, okay. right? But it might mean you need to review it, but it's all homework because we live here. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, we might do that. We might spend a few minutes just seeing, okay, well, you've been working on this poem or this passage for three weeks. Let's go back. And I would do that probably once or twice a week before we actually started our dictation lesson. Okay, do you want to just see if you remember it? And I would prompt them if they, you know, I could see that they were uh, trying to remember the next word or the next line. I would say the first word. Oh, right. Okay. And then we'd move on. You know, so longer things are, are going to take a little more review in order to have them memorized. I don't make them memorize everything, but they almost always do. Could you ever take the topic that you're working on and use that as an independent learning side sheet for later on with that, or would that be defeating the purpose of... Sorry, the topic meaning... I'd say that you're working on a presentation. Right. Um, would you ever use that to fill the time later on in the day, kind of? Um, maybe homework wasn't the right word. Right. <laughs> I get what you mean. Um, would you use your dictation time for, I don't know, just an offshoot? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like sometimes, if, especially if the kids are older and can do things on their own, I'll say, I want three facts about Tolkien. I want three facts about Egypt. Just go find me three facts. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we only do five words and we look something up, and dictation ends up being longer because I've looked up, you know, a few things. And of course, depending on the age of your kids, you're going to do more or less of that. I have the freedom to do more of that now because I don't have lots of little kids, right? I, in fact, I don't have any. <laughs> yes. Sorry, um, dictation is just a new concept for me, and I, I love the idea of it. My question is, um, one of the things that we learn about when we're doing distance learning, for example, is we're supposed to journal. Right. And my son hates it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think the stress is that he has to come up with something. Yeah. So, dictation by modeling... You don't, it takes all of that out. Most kids would say the same thing. If they want a journal, power to you, you know, like journal all you want. Um, you don't even have to look at it. You don't even have to correct it. You don't have to do anything um, because they're learning all of that through dictation, right? And eventually, and I know this because I have seven very different personalities in my, and, and uh, temperaments in my family. At some point, they always come to you in their independent writing. Like say they've written a poem or, is this right? So instead of that saying, you going to their poem, their creative writing, or whatever they're doing on their own, that they're choosing to do, then instead of you saying, oh, you know, you spelled that wrong, or, you know, you need a period there, or whatever, you don't have to, because eventually, they self-edit, and they bring it to you. Where did I, I, this doesn't look quite right to me. It's very cool to see that process happening, but because you've done it all in a model, you haven't ever, they're not feeling like, oh, you know, you're always picking at me, and you're, they're trying to just do something creative, Right. You're welcome. Uh, sorry, I'm visualizing hands going up, but they're not. Um, so we're modeling and encouraging the subject, language, and the attitude. Okay? And you can't separate the two because we are human beings and we need relationships. And you can't separate the subject from the attitude um, and the relationship. So our focused attention for the kids, we want to give them everything we've got unless we're experiencing a crisis. If a crisis happens, pee on the floor, someone throws up, someone's bleeding, you know, someone tumbled down the stairs, an actual crisis as opposed to an avoidable crisis, okay, we go back to the, the quadrants there of, um, you know, 
uh, urgent and not uh, urgent and important, not urgent but important. Spend more time in not urgent but important, so you have avoidable crises. But there's not always avoidable crises. There's some crises are not avoidable, and so that's when our children learn. They're discerning something. Ah, shoot! Somebody tumble down the stairs. I have to go. Okay, it's an actual crisis. So they're learning to discern by watching you respond to an actual crisis. Okay. Uh, I would highly recommend that when you're working with your kids, I do this all morning, usually until after lunch, that I shut off my devices. I put them in my room. Everything's off because it's just not worth it. It's just the too distracting. It's insidious. And yeah. What about the children? Like if you're working with one child and the other children are off playing. Right. What is your policy on that? Meaning playing on a device? My kids never played on devices. So... Um, that was not really something I had to address. I would be inclined to think if one child was on the device, it would make the child sitting doing dictation go completely bonkers because they know that there's something amazing, incomparable to anything else on the planet on that device right now. <laughs> right? So <laughs> that would be my, you know, now we do, there's a couple of things. We do almost nothing electronically. Uh, my kids t- do typing. They learn typing. And sometimes a second language or have been, and times tables, which is about two minutes a day. They do times tables online, um, on a device. Um, they're old enough now that somebody can be doing times tables and somebody else doesn't really care because they're 13 and times tables are boring. Right? <laughs> so, you know, it's not a big deal. But if, if the device was being used as a play thing, I could see that causing problems for sure. Um, so that would be something that maybe they have to be in another room if, if they're going to be on a device. So you go on a device to look up stuff. You don't have your laptop or whatever to look up. No. Oh, yeah, you encourage the use of actual encyclopedias. I actually do, yes. But I'm not willing or able to go out and buy a $1,000 set of encyclopedias every two years. Yes. Uh, well, so I'll get to that. I need my, yeah. my internet. Yeah, I'll get to that. Yeah, I'm going to address that. And um, I think that it's a, it's a good question. It's an important question. Um, and maybe I can convince you otherwise. Um <laughs> So when do we start dictation? Just one last one. Just when she was mentioning other children. Did you, I don't know whether I missed this question previously, but if you do have other children and afloat in the house and they are distracted, not necessarily a, uh, an email or a device, but your other children. Right. Because children are distracting by nature. <laughs> so do you set them up with buddy systems, or do they have a general rule, don't bother mommy during this particular time? Or how do you... Um, if, if they're small, they're allowed to just be on me whenever they want. Okay. Um, this is, you know, this is me. This isn't how I raise kids. So, you know, that's, we all have to do what we feel is right for ourselves. But this is something that I think is important to, to ask what's okay. So if they're small and they need me, and sometimes if they're big and they need me, if my older child was in an emotional crisis and I'm, you guys don't have adult children yet, but your adult children can sometimes have emotional crises where you have to drop everything, right? And so that doesn't really change. It just It's just less frequent. But if I had a 12-year-old who I was in the middle of a dictation lesson and they were in an actual crisis, I'm probably not going to get much in dictation done because this person is shrieking in the background or laying on the floor or flailing or whatever they're doing, right? <laughs> So, you know, um, you have to be, uh, again, that's why in the quadrants, why we put 
uh, filling children's tanks in two quadrants, right? Because we do need to be working on it all the time, but sometimes it's a crisis. And really, we're not going to get anything else done unless we deal with that. If they're just interrupting, mum, 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 then, you know, can you just wait five minutes? You know, when you when I did dictation with you, everyone else respected the time that I had with you, so I would like you to respect that. But I did use a buddy system. So basically what I would do if they were little... Um, and I had older kids, I would say, can you just play with the baby, the toddler? Usually it's usually between about one and three is the age that gets tricky because you don't want them wandering off through the house by themselves. And if it's silent, that's bad. (laughs) Uh, but you know, that's also when they sort of take the most from you, you know, sort of most distraction from you. So if they're not on me, they don't want to be on me. Then I would ask an older kid, I'm, you know, can you just play with so-and-so for a little bit? Um, so it's not oppressive just while I do math and dictation, 20 minutes, and then you can, um, uh, then, you know, I'll take him or somebody else can take him or whatever. So, you know, a buddy system was great, but I didn't want it to be oppressive to one child. So usually, you know, the, the older kids, they help me with one child. And then when I moved on to the next child of one-on-one work that I would ask another older child to, um, help out with that yeah where you have your kids i think if i remember they could just have their own free time right when it's not their turn yeah they're having their own free time yeah now there's things on there as, as they get older there's things on their list that they do on their own and so you know and that gets progressively more every year or two they have more that they actually are responsible for themselves and so that i have a checklist in the in the resource packet there just of my own kids checklist of things that they do. Some of them they do on their own and some they do with me. But whatever they can do on their own, they do. And then they're allowed to just play until I'm ready for them. Yeah, so if they're little and they don't have anything they do on their own, if they were five and I did everything with them, then they would just play until I was ready for them. Yeah. Or or I would sit down and do dictation with that child and then they were, could go off and play for the rest of the time. Yeah. About the checklist, um, it seems like... Is that just something they're supposed to do each day, or are they supposed to get that many done each week? Or, or that's it's just this? each day. We just do four days a week because yeah. we have music one day, so it's the day I usually schedule appointments and stuff as well. So we have music in the morning, and then um, that's free day. So we. But something like dictation is five minutes long. Yeah. Right. So they are getting mm-hmm. one, two, three, four, five, seven subjects or so done a day. Yeah, and that's only the things like there's a lot of stuff done while we read, which right. I'll get into this afternoon. And I actually I didn't include the whole document there, but I actually keep a, a little typed out document too of all the sort of extra things we're reading. Like I'll say this year we're reading blah blah blah, and I'll type out the three or four books we're reading and um, you know what activities we're involved in so we're doing skating on whatever day and I'll, I'll have all those things in a little paragraph form but you know that's I just want to show you guys the checklist because right. people often ask to see it so so if the child is trying to meet some of those things independently in the checklist what happens if you get to the end of the school day and they haven't checked off the things they're supposed to check off well usually what I do is I'm you know, working with them individually and I'm checking in with them. Have you finished such and such? And some kids are way better. Yeah, they just want to check it all off. Right, so. um, some kids are going to sort of drag their feet a little bit more. And so, you know, have you done your music? Oh, can I just wait till after lunch? And I might say, you know, depending on my mood, <laughs> uh, I might say, um, yeah, you could read for a while. Often, usually my kids, it, they'll say, can I just read a chapter of my book? And then I'll do my 
whatever. So I might say yes, and I might say, actually, it's getting pretty late in the day. I think you should just get it done. And, um, and then after lunch, you have all the free time you want to read. So, you know, it would depend what was going on, how I would handle that. But I'm checking in about what they're finished and what they're not finished. You know, so I don't leave it till the end of the day, I guess is what I'm saying. That, you know, I, and then like, oh, no, we didn't finish such and such, you know. Or sometimes we make a decision. Okay, well, today we're kind of short on time, so we're going to cut this and this, and uh, we have to be out somewhere. For example, my daughter, she listens to audiobooks, and she might say, I'm going to go listen to a chapter of my audiobook, and I might say, that's fine, but then I get distracted by something, right. and she has spent three hours listening to her audiobook, right. and has listened to ten chapters, and and then she has all this stuff to do in the evening. Yeah, and so she's not so, self-regulating, but, but neither would you But be. she's also taking yeah. advantage of it. It's not exactly. just her not being able to self-regulate, yeah. it's her purposely getting away with it right like, so maybe you need to set a timer for yourself a timer. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. we're always going back to the timer yeah okay a timer one would want to look at it copy it so is it just to hear it I think it's really important. I think you get a lot more out of it by doing it verbally and walking beside them doing it, not just copying it. Now, I have used copy work very, very, in a very limited way uh, in our homeschooling. And mostly what I did then when I was telling you earlier about I was very ill um, 10 years ago. And after um, I got home from the hospital and I was, it was a long recovery, like an 18-month recovery. And so probably for the first several months or a year after I had my surgery, I had um, just, I had just had the kids come to me on the couch and I would do, I would write out copy work for them and they would copy it. And I would do a short math lesson with them um, for a while. And I just wanted the copy work there to be kind of a bookmark for when we went back to dictation. I didn't want it to them to um, just think, oh, well, we don't do dictation anymore. So I wanted a, a kind of a bookmark. That's the only way I've ever used it, actually. Yeah. Once in a while for cursive writing, I'll, I'll write out a, something so they can follow it cursively when they're older. Yeah. 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 Although some kids, that they have a specific challenge with reading words, written words, and then actually writing them. So yeah. if you were working on that specific skill with your child, you might want to do some copy work. Yeah. But... Yeah. So, you know, I just use it in a limited way because I think dictation is so much more valuable, right? So, uh, where are we? You don't have to know everything, okay? Oh, I'm going to back up for a moment. When to start? I usually start when the child can hold a pencil and make a few letters without crying, okay? That's sort of... There's a pretty big range of that, right? Three to... 12, I don't know, three, three till seven probably. Um, and if you're concerned, if they're getting, you know, five, six, seven, and you're thinking, oh, they still cry when I put a pencil in their hand, um, that you can actually do some pre-dictation things. One of them is simply just pointing out letters, you know, as you're reading, oh, look, there's a B. And they might say, stop that. But if you only do it once per book, then you can get away with it, right? Some kids like it, you know, oh, and they, you can trace their, uh, the letter with their finger. Look at this, look, this is a B for ball. That's cool. Uh, but also you can do a lot of predictation game kind of game type things that you can just give them, you know, like a uh, wet noodle, you know, cooked noodles and they can make letters out of cooked noodles or yarn. Um, you could give them a tray of millet or rice or something that they can actually write in, you know, uh, uh, Play-Doh, that kind of thing. So tactile things that they can make letters. 
And so, you know, you can make a letter for them and, you know, this is your name or this is your the letter to your, uh, the first letter to your name. And then they could try and copy it out of something um, that's easier for them to work with than a pencil, right? So that you're not not doing anything, right? If you feel like you should be doing something. Uh, so it's, it's we're, what we're modeling. You don't have to know everything because we're modeling how to look things up. We're modeling how to find resources. We're modeling that we're learning too. We're modeling a lot of stuff in dictation. And so we don't have to know all the stuff. We don't have to know all the parts of speech. We don't have to know um, all the punctuation because we have resources that we can look it up in. Okay. And it's good for you to be sitting by your child and saying, actually, I don't know when to use a semicolon. Maybe we should find out. Okay. Now, so some resources for that. I've just come across this book. It's lovely. I don't know. Are any of you Usborne dealers? Lots of homeschooling moms going to being Osborne dealers. This is an Osborne book. It's called Junior Illustrated Grammar and Punctuation. It almost reads like a story. It's fantastic. But you could also just leave it beside you so you can look things up contextually when you're pulling a lesson out of um, out of dictation. Really, really good book. I have a link to that on my website. Um, and any decent dictionary, the first few pages, decent doesn't mean expensive. You can get a $10, you know, Merriam-Webster dictionary, and the first few pages of it will be grammar and usage. Okay, so when you buy a dictionary, just flip the first few pages. In, it, almost every dictionary will have that in it, really basic grammar and usage skills um, at the beginning of it, or facts. Uh, you'd, you'd almost have to go to the dollar store dictionary in order to not get that. So any decent brand is going to have that. It doesn't need to be expensive. Um, there's also these tons of stuff on Pinterest. I'm kind of new to the Pinterest party. Uh, tons of stuff on Pinterest about, um, you know, uh, a verb chart or a parts of speech chart or a punctuation chart, all kinds of stuff like that, which is great. Print it off, put it in a little binder, put it up on your wall. Um, so these are just a couple of things you know, a practice sheet. This is one I've purchased and it's a grammar guide. So this, this grammar guide is pretty extensive. Like it will probably take you all the way through high school, most things. Um, and then you can get a more, this one's called English grammar and punctuation. It's actually a college university level. So it's going to have everything the other one had and more, more than you will ever need to remember. Um, but something that then you can take away with you when you go to university and you actually need how to need to know how to make footnotes or something or remember things you learned previously. So there's lots of resources like that and lots of free resources now, tons of free resources like that. These are, you know, six or seven dollars. These things are usually, um, you know, two or three dollars at a school store. And often they will have them at places like Staples or Walmart at the beginning of the school year, but no other time. So if you don't live near a teacher's store, then you want to look for that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Oh, really? Is Pinterest is too big of competition? It's got to be, right? Because I thought I can find everything on there, and I can make it. You know, it can be cuter than what they sell at the teacher store. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, um, so you don't have to know it all. I have a couple of these dictionaries. This is a great big World Book expensive dictionary, which I think is really worth having. Not absolutely necessary, but I love looking up. Uh, word etymologies as we're going along. Sometimes like, oh, where did that come from? We look up the word and we find its ancient root. And I find that really interesting. And some of my kids have found it really interesting. But it's got a huge extensive um, 
So this whole section here until we get to the A is grammar, usage, punctuation, vocabulary, how to address a letter to the Pope. Um, you know, like just unbelievable skills in here that you could look up. So familiarize yourself with your dictionary about what it has to offer because sometimes it's just a dictionary you need sitting by your desk so you can look anything up. Um, I think this one's particularly nice because... Uh, do you want me to pass this around? Is that the yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Because it has everything you would need in it, certainly for all of elementary school, and in a really engaging way, so that the child is probably actually going to pick it up and read it. You know? What was it called? So, Junior Reader? Junior and Illustrated Grammar and Punctuation. And you have a link. Sorry? Give a link. Yeah, what I did actually, I've often wondered if I should take all the resources that I recommend to people and package them up, like buy them wholesale and package them up and, and sell them as a package so people don't have to go scrambling around for them. But I've just discovered something, late to the party again, that I created an Amazon store that all the things I recommend, so you can just go on my Amazon store and go click, 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 all the things I recommend on there. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> And I don't have to buy and stock all that stuff. So I was never actually going to do that. I just dreamed about it. Um, so where are we? Okay, so let's talk about some resources for dictation. You could use virtually anything. Any novel, nursery rhymes, poetry. Um, there's some really great uh, books that we've used over and over and over again. This is just our present things we're doing in this book. Uh, my daughter actually went out and bought her, asked for this for Christmas last year, my 29-year-old daughter. Uh, it's amazing. Favorite poems, old and new. They're all children's poems, okay, uh, at very various levels. And it's organized thematically, so you can look up, you know, um, time to play. You can look up uh, the seasons. You can look up geography. You can look up poems on bugs. Various um, subject areas. So you can cross, you know, cross-reference uh, if you're particularly interested in bugs or something like that, or, or your child is. Sorry? Who's it by? Um, it is Selected by Helen Ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S. And also in the back, it's cross-referenced um, in the way it's organized. So it's organized by poet, it's organized by first line, it's organized by title. So if you think of a poem that you knew, you know, when you were a kid, oh, I remember the first line of it, you can look it up. So it's really, it's really well organized and we have used it. This and another book I'm going to recommend to you later on um, used more than any other book in our homeschooling. Lots of prose, lots of stuff from novels or storybooks, uh, any storybook. You could use a science book. If you had a kid who was not into storybooks at all, but they loved eyewitness books, or they loved <clears throat> Asterix and Obelisk, Obelix, Obelix? Um, that they could, you could use it from anything, right? Now, ideally, most of what you choose <clears throat> is going to be good literature, okay? Um, but if you have a child who maybe is balking at that, because you just pulled them out of school. <laughs> oh, that was a slam. I'm sorry. Um, but if they, you know, if they, for whatever reason, aren't interested in poetry, aren't in interested in sort of a more beautiful literature, pull something out of your eyewitness books. Pull something out of um, something that you know, the airplane books, whatever they're interested in, and do your dictation from that. Um, so again, being nice is vital to this, okay? Uh, and... It's going to be much harder to do dictation or get anything out of it if you're not nice. Um, the good news is when you want to be nice, if you practice, you get better at it. Okay? <laughs> it's like a workout. You can work your nice muscle for dictation. Okay? <laughs> and you have to have <clears throat> an attitude that you're going to practice and you're going to develop the habit and you're slowly going to get stronger at being nice. 
Okay, so maybe you start being nice for five minutes and you work up to 20 minutes in one stretch. <laughs> I had a mom ask me not very long ago, I did a uh, workshop in Vancouver and this mom asked me a great question. She said, you know, I've been working on when to use quotation marks for like three weeks every day and my eight-year-old is just not getting it. And she said, what, what am I doing wrong? And I said, well, I guarantee you sometime in the next five years, he will get it. <laughs> she went, oh. <laughs> so readiness, right? They're just not ready for whatever reason. Um, my oldest daughter was, uh, when she was quite young, five or six, I got a little book that I thought was for her age range on learning time, you know, learning how to tell time. And she just didn't, it was like, I was speaking some other language and I was pointing it all out and it was very, taking it very slowly and it was a really beautiful little book on how to tell time. And I thought, this is weird. Like, how come she's not getting this? And she was upset because she wasn't getting it. And I said, yeah, well, maybe it's just not the right time. So we put it away. And six months later, I brought it out and she's like, oh, I get this and did the whole workbook in one day. So she went from like, this is like space talk or this is something, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. It's another language to, oh yeah, I got this in a matter of six months. Right. So sometimes that's what we're looking at with dictation or, or any other aspect of learning. There's something that we have to be very careful with, a phrase that we have to be very careful with. And the phrase is, you should know this. All right. You should know this. And what's inherent in that phrase is that you are implying they are either lazy, lying, lying or stupid. OK, if your boss taught you something yesterday and you don't remember it today and he says, you should know this. You are going to infer he means you are either lazy, lying, or stupid. Okay? Maybe you are. Maybe you're one of those things. But why would we make that an issue? Okay? If the child is stupid, they don't get it. Um, why would you want to point that out to them? Okay? If they're lying, you need to address it outside of that circumstance if your child lies to you. Okay? This is a phrase that we just need to strike out of our homeschool vocabularies. You should know this. Okay, it's, it's really uh, a really damaging thing. And you know if, you, if someone said it to you, that's how it would feel. Uh, so any questions about dictation in general? We've had lots via the, this segment, but is there anything else that pops into your mind about dictation possibilities? Yeah? Do you ever use uh, songs? Yes, because that's just poetry, right? Yes. So, yeah, absolutely. Because my kids love to sing. Mm, so awesome. They're always singing to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's just poetry. So, no, I would encourage you. Any Anything that they're willing to work with, we usually started with nursery rhymes because they already know them, right? They know that what comes next. They know what word comes next and they're excited, you know? What about, um, there was a, a phase of a couple months where my five or six-year-old just... She, she didn't respond to anything that was right. outside of herself. So I just started saying... Can you think of a sentence you want to write today? Yeah. Does that work for you? Like yeah. You're... Well, Lydia's f whole first six months of dictation, she wrote, I love mama every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely. You know, if there's maybe they want to write down the names of the people in their family, you know, that's often a great place to start. Right. Yeah. Or their favorite bug. You know, how do you spell spider or whatever they're whatever they're so into. They're going to be way more likely to do that. And that, that's a great starting place. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Suddenly, there's this tremendous amount of asking, could you please 
Right. 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 Yeah, although very common. Yes. Bright, bored, and confrontational. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been given um, suggestions, everything from it's difficult for to write, so maybe he should go on the computer more, and we're kind of a, a non-traditional right. or non-cultural family as far as don't like computer. Uh, so they're trying to almost label it that he's got a, a problem that right. needs to be solved by, we should get a computer program to help him speak into it and make it print out. He should use the computer all the time. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, no, I want him to write. But So we enrolled him in a, uh, a writing class through the um, Andrew Pugwa. Mm-hmm. Right. But he's kind of feeling like that it's way over his head. Mm-hmm. And he's only 10, but he's in, you're familiar with it, so I think it's um, level B1. Right. And I don't know that that's uh, a, a, reg- a regular age to start them at that kind of level. Of right. Well, yeah, okay, so I'm just going to, to move into writing for a moment, which is what I normally do after dictation. Um, we go- move from dictation into writing, and I, uh, the Institute for Excellence in Writing has been great for that because they also use a model to learn to write with. That's where they learn their writing skills. So it's a great transition from dictation to move into that kind of writing. That doesn't mean if you haven't been doing dictation, it won't work. However... Uh, it's a a readiness issue as well. So I would suggest a couple of things. Either wait a couple of years. If he's not grabbing writing yet, waiting a couple of years is a good idea. Um, Or or even a year or six months. Sometimes that makes all the difference. And that's my husband and my youngest daughter, Lydia, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) In case there was any concern. Um, And alternately, I would scale down the Institute for Excellence in Writing program and just cut down to the very basics of it where you learn how to do a keyword outline, you learn how to make a basic sentence, and you learn how to dress up the basic sentences, and you could only do one of those things each day. So you're just producing one paragraph a week, and he's going to learn some great writing skills. So today, five minutes, keyword outline. Tomorrow, five minutes, basic sentence. You know, Friday, dress-ups. Start with two, you know. Oh, absolutely. There's college students who couldn't do this. Like when they start, you know, who've never done this kind of thing before. That, you know, writing, we're really, really low on our writing skills when our kids enter school in general. It's so you normally poor. kind of do dictation up until a certain readiness and then you, you, I used to do that, yeah. Or I would introduce writing while I was still doing dictation overlap for a year or so. Uh, my older kids, I'm sorry, my younger kids who are at home now actually asked if they could continue doing dictation, which I thought was really a huge um, indicator of, of how nice it is, right? Could we, Well, why do we have to stop? Because I usually would stop when I couldn't really challenge them anymore. So that might be around, you know, sort of 12 or 13. So there's pretty strong language skills for a 12 or 13-year-old who can't be challenged um, on, you know, a fairly uh, advanced passage. So we just talk more about... Um, about the passage itself and about the, you know, the poetry and the meaning of it and various other aspects of language. But I think that's really neat that they would, they would do that. So I, I introduced writing and uh, I'm continuing to do dictations, only five minutes or 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that we've often done writing camps. We just finished one here over the last couple of months so that we get together. Cause I find I'm more motivated to do writing with my kids 
if, uh, you know, you have a few kids there, you have some friends to write with and they do silly. We usually start off with silly things and then move into more serious things. So if you know somebody who's familiar with the program, mm-hmm. if they'd be willing to get a few kids together, it's really a, it's a nice way to write and then they can read their writing out to people and mm-hmm. whatnot. It's, it's a, you know, I'm assuming your kids liked it, Lisa. but they all it's remarkable because i I had a wide age range you're sort of right from you know seven up to 16 and they're all doing the same thing the 16 year old the older kids are just taking it further so it's exactly the same process it's a great program Uh, i do have a comment on the workshop um i have tried to use shut the camera off no just kidding (laughs) (laughs) i've tried to use the institute in excellence in writing for quite a time um, and you know, they got it, thought it was okay, whatever. But then with the workshop, uh, when they could hear also what the other kids had produced and their dress ups and how they made it interesting, yeah, wow, like even the stuff I'm getting at home, uh, Brian said, but but now I get it so much more about yeah. this, yeah, and but it having the group, what a huge yeah. difference. And if there's enough interest, I could do a you know a writing evening or something like that. So it's really tra- training the parents. That's kind of the, the way this writing works. So it's really training the parents to you know what you what you do, especially if kids are younger. So just a couple of suggestions for writing. I've heard that also Sigmund Brower is really excellent. I used to used to do workshops at the prison to work for. Sorry, who? Sigmund Brower. Okay. Um, he does a writing workshop with kids all over Canada. Oh, cool. And he came... Is it a different kind of program? Like a... Um, he didn't actually have... He just had novels he'd written and he would just... He would, he's really funny. Oh, so he would, he okay. He would have the kids write. He would just okay, talk cool. and they would just write and they would be laughing the whole time and he would just really bring out the love of writing. And right. And he comes and he does workshops all over the place. He's really so funny. just say that name again if people want to jot it down. Sigmund Brower. Sigmund Brower, B R O W E. I saw him do many workshops at my old store that worked at in okay. Calgary, and he's hilarious. Okay, good. Very, 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 very good. And okay. He's got a great knowledge for the kids to read, too. Oh, really awesome. Series. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. When you say small and young, what age groups are you referring to? Small and young. I'm intentionally vague, okay, because what, what a five year old could do, in what some five year olds could do, might not be from our the way we measure things because we're really hung up on measuring things. A ten-year-old might not be able to do, right? So small and young, um, you know, I would probably be kind of referring to when they still need you a lot, right? Okay. When they still need you a lot for their learning, whatever it is they're learning, whether so it's small and young, we put together. Yeah. And where would you say the young? Where does that age limit? Okay. Well, like I was saying, with, with, you know, I had kids who read at three and kids who read at 12. So there's a huge range uh, of, of capacity to absorb information at any given time. So very hard to sort of be specific. And I think that's one that really the greatest problem of school, isn't it, is that we, we put all the seven-year-olds in one class and we try to sort of teach them as a group. And there's everybody from somebody who doesn't even know their letters yet to somebody who's been reading for three years, you know. So it's really hard. You know, that's a hard, that's a big challenge, and right? Older, what do you consider older, though? That's, uh, that's if, if if I'm saying older, I'm probably talking more t- teenagers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can I just ask you, when you started the writing program doing the keyword outlines, did you always, um, was that a a lot to begin with, to do the keyword outline and the sentences and then dressing it up? Did you... In one day? Yeah, you, would you always... Yeah, I almost always, unless they were really keen. Okay. The kids are really keen, but I almost always introduced it that way. Yeah. 
All right, so I'm going to move on uh, to chocolate chip math, okay? And chocolate chip math is going to be a lot shorter when I talk about it because it's going to look an awful lot like dictation, okay? So I literally start out with a little handful of chocolate chips when my kids are small, and we start with very basic math skills. With my younger kids, with my, you know, older couple of kids, you know, I taught them how to count. After you've had one or two kids, you don't ever have to teach anybody to count because they play hide-and-seek with their siblings, and they know how to count, okay? They also know how to use your iPhone and, you know, how to delete things on, you know, your computer and all kinds of stuff that, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of skills that you don't necessarily need to teach your subsequent kids, right? Sometimes, but um, not usually. But So we would start off with counting. And so... I would just count, and they would be saying it or watching me say it along with them. And then I would start doing it like I would do the odd numbers. I would say one, and what, you know, and they would say two, I would say three, and they would say four, and then I would switch it up the next day, right? So that they were learning uh, both parts of the sequence, right? So that I was doing the even. So what comes first? One, okay, I do two, you do three, I do four. Um, so then they get the hang of counting, and then I started doing plus one. So, okay, you have five chocolate chips here. So if I add one, okay, how many have you got? Six. Well, if they don't know the answer, they can see there's six chocolate chips sitting in front of them, right? And they can count them if they want to. So they're using the chocolate chips just like any manipulative that you would use in, in math, right? So at some point, of course, chocolate chips becomes uh, inefficient because you don't want 100 chocolate chips, right? You might go up to 20, but you know... Common sense would tell us we don't go past 20. So when that point happens, depending on the child, again, big age range of when that might happen, that we need to move beyond the total equaling 20 of something, uh, then I just have a cup of chocolate chips and they just eat it when they're done their math lesson. So that's how a chocolate chip math works. So, But we start off um, like this, counting plus ones, plus twos, and then we start doing things like, you know, two chocolate chips and three chocolate chips would equal what? Okay, and they see them there in front of them. Here's two and here's three. What does that equal? Um, and, you know, you get a little bit higher numbers and they learn their addition facts that way. And then, of course, subtraction. You're doing usually those at the same time. Okay, so I've got four chocolate chips. And if you take away two, how many do I have left? And we're just talking through it and doing it with our hands or they're doing it with their hands. At some point, uh, you know, and again, a readiness thing, you know, do you know there's actually symbols that tell us these things? We can actually write it out just like we write out words. And so I've got the chocolate chips there. So three and four, you know, when we say, can you have three, you have three chocolate chips here and four chocolate chips here and you put them together, there's actually a symbol we use. You know, it's this sign here. Some kids might get that at five. Some kids might get that at seven. You know, you just don't know, right? So you're going to try it out. And if they're really baffled by this sort of a symbol, meaning and, then you might wait a little while before you do that again. And so you introduce the symbol. So again, a little paper, you know, a little book like this. And so I'm first of all just using the chocolate chips and writing things out. And I'm using it for fractions. You know, can you show me half of the chocolate chips? I'm using it for division. Can you divide this group of chocolate chips into four equal parts? So each of you, your siblings that live at home, each get the same amount of chocolate chips. You know, and um, so division, multiplication, uh, addition, subtraction. I'm doing it all with chocolate chips. Then I start actually writing it while I do it with the chocolate chips. Eventually, I can just write out the questions and I no longer need to actually use the chocolate chips, right? So um, I don't need the manipulatives anymore because they've reached that point. Uh, for my kids, at some point, then I've started um, 
you know, using a math curriculum, when I feel like they've got all their basic arithmetic skills, and I need to now introduce something um, that's going to uh, fill in the blanks a bit more on their math skills, then I'm going to introduce some sort of curriculum, which I'm doing exactly the same way. I'm sitting there doing it along with you. I'm just doing it beside you. I'm writing out the questions. We're going through it together. And that's how we're learning math. So it's, it's, you know, again, the backing away slowly. Do you remember how to do this? And it's probably a four or five year process of backing away. You know, um, okay, you can do these questions here. You might need my help with these ones. So why don't you do those ones? And I'll come back and, you know, make sure that you, you're getting it. Or they just, you know, oh, mom, I, I'm not really getting this. Um, then I'm giving the inform information that they need. Some parents might feel comfortable enough with math uh, that they don't need to use a curriculum for a long time or never. You know, um, Lisa, you might fall into that category. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, math is so comfortable and so obvious what you do next that you don't actually need something sitting beside you that's telling you, okay, this is what we lead into next. They've got all their arithmetic skills. Now we're going to spend some time on fractions. Now we're going to spend some time on decimals. Now we're going to spend some time on this or that. Um, so that's when I'm using it. And then eventually they're just using the curriculum on their own. But it's a very slow backing away process. Uh, and some kids, again, big range, some kids, by the time they're 10 or 11, are just totally dialed in, totally able to do that on their own, once in a while might need help with a question. Some kids, you know, 16. Um, some kids maybe never, you know, my, my one son that struggles with math, I, I just never thought he would get it, and he gets it now. And so we're just, we're just slowly backing away. Most of his lesson, I would say 80%, he does on his own. I never thought I'd see that happen. Right? He just needed too much support in math, and boom, he got the support, and look what's happening. I did not create a, a dependent person. I created an independent person by giving him whatever he needed. Right, So there's a lot to be said for that. Um, so where are we here? Um, sometimes kids will balk anyway, even though you have chocolate chips and it's cozy and all you're doing is you know five questions or something in 10 minutes of math. They will still... Uh, you know, balk at doing math, right? And I think sometimes we have to address that. Okay, is there some, you know, seems like you're having kind of a tough day. Is there something we could do differently? Would you like to just play cards with me? Or you could come up with a little math game that you could play as an alternative. Um, or you could just say, I think it's a really tough day. If they're on the brink of a meltdown, just sort of picture the difference. Okay, you know what? We have to get our math done. They're on the brink of a meltdown. I need you to to just write the five down. I just need you to put it on the paper. And they're ramping up. And you're saying, okay, now write the two down. Write the plus down. Write the signs. Write it down. Write the total. You know this. Okay, we can do that. Okay, but it's not going to take us anywhere good. Okay, we could also go like this. Okay, fine. No math today. That's another option. Or we could say, this is a really tough day for you. Would you like to just sit on my lap for a little walks? I think maybe what you need is cuddle time with me. Okay? Now, theoretically, you know, it's been brought up in workshops before, is somebody could say, well, no, then they're just going to keep pulling that over and over again. But that's not what happens. They recognize it as a gift. It's a gift. Okay? They recognize it. That's not what we do. If somebody says to you, you're frustrated with something, you're trying to do something, your husband comes along and says, let me do that for you. Wow, I'd love to do that for you. You sit down. I'll make you a cup of tea. Just sit down. It's a gift, right? We don't think, oh, I got that. Tomorrow I'm going to be all upset when my husband walks in the door and I won't have to do the thing, right? We don't think that way. We're, and we're gracious. 
Okay. And so are your kids. They're not going to take advantage of you, but make it a gift as opposed to they, um, as opposed to leverage, first of all, or as opposed to, um, the child wheedling. Don't, don't let it get there. Right. Give the gift first and don't let the wheedling happen. Right. Um, so is five minutes a day enough? Okay. You know, I think that's a, a reasonable question. Five minutes of math, 10 minutes of math, five minutes of language, 10 minutes of language. Um, all my kids who graduated all went to university. So I think it's enough, right? I think it's enough. I'm convinced it's enough. But I think what's important to note about it is that those one-on-one -on -one lessons that you do with your kids are not five minutes. Five minutes is not five minutes. If you take a slice of onion and you stick it under a microscope and you look at it with your child for five minutes, they will pester you for two days about all the interesting things they saw under the microscope. All right? So when we... When we hone in on something, we become the microscope for language. We become the microscope for math. We're excited about it. We're modeling this and we're looking at it for five or 10 minutes. Then the child is, is, is exposed to something that is going to ripple out for far longer than five minutes. Okay. Most of the time when we give our kids, if we gave them a math worksheet that was going to take them half an hour or we said we're going to do a math lesson now, 45 minutes after the first 10 minutes, they're pretty much shut down anyway. Right. So we might as well capitalize on that and build on it as they get older. You're going to build more and more, you know, so a kid can eventually sit down to a 45 minute lesson. But really, that doesn't need to happen until high school. Right. So, you know, there's there's just so much that can happen in those five minutes. So is there any questions about chocolate chip math or five minutes not being five minutes? Yes. Um, so you say that it should start extending when they get into high school. So what I'm finding is my daughter was schooled till last this year and she had such a rotten experience with school that she was very resistant right to anything that looks like school now and but she's in grade eight right and she's 13 and she's moving along into that high school realm right so i'm hoping to take the next year or two to un traumatize her I yeah guess. there's a word for this de-school de de-school de people so who pull their kids actually, out of school yeah mm -hmm. and but the problem is by grade 10 she has to be there in my mind yeah um she knows she needs to be able to have that capacity to happy 45 minute math lesson at some right. point but right now she can't handle anything that looks like a real math lesson right so i'm like tricking her by getting her to do right. math in accidental weird ways yeah but, so i would recommend this is geared towards young kids i'll make a comment on that but i would recommend reading this book um she so it's geared at k to three which i know isn't her age range at all but she talks a lot about the natural inductive method of learning right which is a lot of what you know i've incorporated i'm talking about but she kind of lays it out and it can just be extended she also has another book called you can teach your child grades four to eight and it's, it's building on this idea. But most of the people who I know who have pulled their kids out of school and have gone through this de-schooling process, is this her first year out? First of all, it takes about a year. Yeah. Okay. Second of all, the most successful uh, way that people have approached it is that they all they do is read and do field trips and awesome stuff for the first year. Which is pretty much what we're doing. I'm yeah. just worried that I feel like I only have two years to get her unschooled and then yeah. re-ready to 
to do school. Right. But, you know, it's cyclical. Like if we, our kids have had years where we have done virtually nothing all year because we've had a crisis and it's cyclical. I'll just share a quick story with you and then we'll take a little break. Um, I had a friend who, she was my neighbor in when we lived up in the New Spay and her grandmother um, had several children and when they all got to be in, in, in those days it was less of a concern when you actually went to school so probably between eight and ten or something like that they would start going to school and her youngest daughter so this was my friend's grandmother uh, my friend's mother her youngest daughter um, hadn't gone off to school yet she was eight or ten or whatever and she was the last child at home they lived out on a farm it was kind of remote and the the grandma was feeling lonely right and didn't want to send the child to school she could read already she had taught her to read there was books in the house so she spent a lot of time reading and working with her mom and various other things and um had had was having a rich experience in her childhood uh and then finally when she got to be so basically she was just being kept home because the mom was lonely and wanted to just keep her home and she was in agreement and it wasn't that big of a deal back in the day uh finally at 12 she said oh i guess i better send you to school and she did. And she just slipped in to grade seven curriculum because it's cyclical. If I take a five-year-old and I, I'm going to teach them fractions, say, um, and I, we might work on that and, and um, prepare the foundation for that and teach them about fractions and they might get it. And then the next year we upgrade, teach them a little bit more about fractions, maybe smaller um, denominators or whatever. We're going to do more fractions every year. But if I met an adult who had never learned math for whatever reason, and they were 20, and I said, oh, there's this thing called fractions when we divide things into parts. Oh yeah, I know, I divide things into parts. You're gonna know that because you divide things into parts. Um, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of, this whole sort of area of math about that. Um, I can teach it to you. You could probably bring them up to a grade seven or eight level in a few days, right? Because they're ready, their mind is ready. So it's not gonna take seven years of teaching that person fractions over and over and over again to get to that place. So if you took the year off and then started her in a grade eight or nine math book, she would probably be fine. So 